From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes, The Timeless Voyager. Have you ever wondered if many of the most important events in U.S. history are really accurate? I know I have. My next guest is Andrew D. Bajago via cell phone. He's been on the show many times. He is a lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, and one of the first U.S. chrononauts from Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel. Andrew is going to fill us in on his recent research into the U.S. history that we've all been taught over many, many years. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be with you again. How did you begin to do this type of research in the first place? I just began running into not so much version of, versions of our history, but sort of, of our common culture that are just not true. And I've always been fascinated with the subject, but of course I was really working on telling my own stories that were unique. Um, so I kind of felt obligated to do that, but I just began to collect certain things that were actually true about American history and culture and even astronomy and, and uh, astrophysics. So today we're going to kind of have a potpourri of just different data points that will convince our listeners that we, they don't, that they haven't been told what the country, the, what the government knows life consists of, what our sort of solar system consists of and what American history and, and culture actually has involved. Very interesting. Uh, how would you like to start? Well, let's start with this uh, because it's so part of Americana. Now I want to go through some of the sort of the things we know. We know that Mark Twain is considered one of our greatest novelists. We know that Ernest Hemingway, also one of our greatest novelists, stated in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech that that scene in the, obviously, the preeminent uh, American novel, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where Huck Finn takes his uh, slave friend Jim up the Ohio rather than down the Mississippi is really the beginning, as Hemingway said, of American literature. I learned more about Mark Twain and his family that for some reason it's not told. It, it was, it's never told by the government. It's never told by the Park Service uh, when they're down, you know, in Hannibal, Missouri. 
It's not told by our English teachers, our college professors. Because we, we were taught this book from elementary school to graduate school, for those of us who became English majors in graduate school. But let's start where, where Mark Twain or Samuel Langhorne Clemens met his wife, Olivia Langdon. He was 33 years old, and he had just done that, that tour of the Middle East that he wrote about in his, in his book, Innocence Abroad. And he met the, um, the 22-year-old, uh, Olivia Langdon, and told his friends, that's the woman I'm going to be marrying. Hmm. But then I started to investigate her father. Do you have an idea who her, who her father was? No, I don't. I... Well, there's a man named Jervis Langdon, and he was the most important person in every way in the life of the esteemed Frederick Douglass, really the first American, you know, kept as a slave, became a leading figure of, of our culture. Hmm. And so I thought, why would they keep that out of American history? I mean... So anyway, they were they were having dinner at their home in Palmyra, New York, and Mark Twain was a pretty famous novelist by that time. Huh. And I found out by investigating Olivia Langdon's father that she was the financier, the teacher, the speech coach, and everything for Frederick Douglass, you know, the, the first slave to really um, – become a major public figure. So my point there is that when 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 Twain wrote Huckleberry Finn, he was from a major abolitionist family. Not just a minor one, they had the most success. You know, liberating somebody from slavery and really allowing his God-given gifts to build him up to a very esteemed man in society. So I just find really symptomatic of what our government has been doing to us for several centuries now. It's basically lying to us. Why did none of our English teachers, none of our college professors, for example, even uh, Ernest Hemingway in his Nobel Prize for Literature acceptance speech simply not mention the fact that Mark Twain was the son-in-law, essentially, of the man who trained and liberated Frederick Douglass. Um, I don't know why Twain might have covered it up, but I'm kind of a little bit wondering why our common culture kind of just deep six that fact. And uh, I find that very, very weird, very troubling. Um, both Twain and Frederick Douglass were major figures, but they never gave us the last shoe to drop, which is, in addition to that, he was Jervis Langdon's son-in-law. And uh, I think that's historically relevant. I don't, I don't think it really has had a major negative impact on the country, but it's just sort of like something that was just sort of deep-sixed. Very interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another one. Okay. We all know about the, we all know about the, the murder of, of, of John F. And, and RFK Kennedy. Do you know who uh, Robert F. Kennedy was going to choose as his vice presidential running mate? You know, I don't. Dr. Martin Luther King. Whoa. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not making that up. That's a shock. That was shared by his brother, Ted Kennedy, Edward Moore Kennedy. Hmm. But I, I think if you went onto a street anywhere in America and said, 
who was Bobby Kennedy Sr. going to be selecting as his vice presidential running mate? Maybe one American out of a hundred could say Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I, mean, I don't even think it could be that many. It might be less. It might maybe, be. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe one out of 200 or 300. I'm thinking more like one out of 10,000. It just has been memory hold. Yeah. Uh, just just like Marcus Garvey has been memory hold. I mean, he was a huge figure in America. Who? And the, uh, Wait, who's that? Marcus Garvey was a black man who basically worked not so much for civil rights for black people, but economic development. Hmm. He had a, an organization called the United, forgive me, but Negro uh, Improvement Association. Yeah, I think you can say that because that was actually its name. Yeah, that that was the the the, uh, the name of his organization. Right. But that was a huge movement, the so-called Harlem Renaissance. Hmm. But he's forgotten Marcus Garvey. I, I found that regrettable. But I mean, in the case of uh, JFK and RFK, they are preeminent Americans of the 1960s, and it, it just sort of got memory hold that Bobby County was going to ask the leading uh, personage in race relations, the person who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1968, and really probably the most incredible humanist of the 1960s to be his running mate. Bobby and, and Jack's brother, Edward Moore Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, referred to that. He, he discussed that. But it still it still doesn't seem part of American culture. Hmm. Now I think in, in another way that I learned by getting kind of a, a special education as a kid in Pegasus is they've done that in very specific areas that are even more spiritual and political or cultural. Hmm. One is I like to share with everybody is the Defense Department knows, and in fact they knew by at least. Uh, what, 1970, I was in the third grade, that's when they told me, they know that we do not die. They know that's, that life is eternal. We go from life to life, picking up experience, learning how to learn, learning how to love, but they know that's the case. Even for, you know, the, the Raymond Moody days of Life Beyond Life, and those kinds of books. Mm-hmm. They told me they had proved it. So don't worry, kids. If you get killed uh, time traveling for us, you're going to leave your body, go back to heaven, and have a, your life reviewed, and then go down into another body in another lifetime. So I find that rather regrettable that the U.S. government decided to hold that back from us. One of the things they did, and it was my own father who did it, is they videotaped the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. Now, what everybody, what, you know, what anybody has as their own particular um, religious beliefs, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. But I don't think anybody can deny that we began essentially as a Christian country. Uh, my mentor Norman Cousins stated in his book. Um, oh, what was it? In God We Trust, that virtually every founder of the country, except Benjamin Franklin, you know, 
was a was a Bible believing Christian. They were they were they were Christian people. And yet when we prove that not only the resurrection of Jesus after death, as well as each other, for some reason the government decided to conceal that from us. So think of the people who have been periodically intimidated by the prospect of dying, of being obliterated. At one time when I was going to Mars, that was really quite frightening. Um, And it's something I've I've never felt hugely comfortable with. So my question to everybody is, why did the U.S. government conceal that finding from us? I thought we were going to be a a nation of science. Okay, so what I'm saying is in 1970, the U.S. Defense Department revealed to us that we do not die. Well, don't you think that, that I, I just interrupt for a second. This is, this is something I've talked about many times. Religion basically took this, this um, issue and has held it as a very important part of religion. Right. And I wonder if maybe the question is a, se- a separation of church and state question, not not because that makes it okay, but it could be just a political direction. I'm saying that ideally, religion, science, and philosophy will be hybridized and understood. In fact, Norman Cousins was going to write a book he planned to call Blessed Event for the sort of the fusing of religion, science, and philosophy. All I'm saying is, while we started as a Christian country, we didn't reveal to the people on the basis of science that they should not worry about their, well, they should be worried about what they do in their life, but they should not worry about their death. Now, a lot of people go through major head trips in life worrying about when they're going to be obliterated by death. I'm here to say that the Defense Department told us that we we are not obliterated. Just mm-hmm. like Jesus resurrected, so will we individually. And, it's and in- I think it's fairly safe that that scientific finding was, was held back. What's interesting is that <clears throat> even knowing what I know, <laughs> it's hard to believe that it would be part of our discussion, and yet it's natural to be part of our discussion today. These are hidden facts that you discovered, or that you maybe yeah. you that you yeah. wanted to relate. Now, what, what I think's happened is that some people are waking up, and they're being quite truthful and sort of frank, even if they take criticisms. When I was about two or three years old, I began recovering my memories of Doc Hammarskjöld. Hammarskjöld was the second. Secretary General of the UN, after his friend Trig V. Lee of Norway. He was a Swede, and he died on September 18th of 1961 in the Belgian Congo. His plane was shot down. I was born right around that time, not just that day, but that hour, because I, ch- I checked the time synchrony of Doc Harmarshall's fatal plane crash. Hmm. And... Um, I knew as like a two and three year old that I was Hammerschuld. I used to tell my my four uh, older sisters and brothers, I would say, I'm dog. And 
I've even remembered things that were disputed about Hammarskjöld and stated to people for years. No, that's not what happened, but this happened. So, for example, his plane wasn't just shot down. I mean, it just didn't fall out of the sky. It was shot down. Hmm. Now, somebody recently told me there were bullet holes all over it. But what I remember is being shot on the ground. I remember several uh, Caucasian gentlemen, maybe about three, coming over to me and just blowing me away, which they may very well have been Burgesian um, mercenaries trying to prevent Hammer Schuld from bringing about peace in Central Africa. Hmm. But I'm saying that I didn't remember Dog Hammerschuld like when I studied in, jun- in junior high or high school even. I was telling my brother and sisters I'm Dog when I was two and three years old. How does a kid do that? So I think that it's good that sort of certain luminaries of our time are saying, no, I wasn't just reincarnated. Here's who I was. Because I think that may wake up the rest of us. But I don't necessarily disbelieve Patrick Flanagan for saying that he was Tesla and David Wilcock for saying that he was Edgar Casey. Because my knowledge of being Hammerschuld was just as as memorable. There are so many people who make these claims that you're talking about. Yeah. And 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 um, it could be that there that all of them are telling the truth. It may be just our inability to see events and people as more expansive than we 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 limit ourselves. For example, if you say that you were Dog Harmashal and we decide to believe all of that, then if another yeah. person comes up and says that they are Dog Harmashal, we're either going to dispute that or think that you are not him or that you're both not him and the whole thing is not true. So you can, you can see what happens with limited vision and limited abilities, which I believe we have. We're very limited as human beings in our perception. Well, it could also be that, you know, as Walt Whitman said, you too shall become Lincoln. Now, what was Walt Whitman talking about? I have no you idea. You shall become Lincoln. Does he mean a president of a country during a civil war? Does he mean a great leader who was assassinated or from Illinois? Or what, what just, you know, did Walt Whitman mean? But that's what he said. You too shall become Lincoln. So maybe in this advanced... Uh, you know, this advanced description you give it, everybody becomes everybody before completing some cycle. Hmm. Maybe it's just a, a metaphor for, for that process. Interesting. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so I remember I remember being homish old, I guess, if somebody else does, maybe then we have the same memories. I think that we may not reincarnate, but maybe we have thought forms from those who have already been alive when we're being alive. In other words, it's a psychic, uh, a psychic trait of some kind. You know, it's interesting because um, uh, Gurdjieff, uh, the Sufi um, mystic, never talked about reincarnation, but rather he called it recurrence. And he gave a, a, a big um, explanation, which I'm not going to go through right now. But it's a very interesting concept in that he spoke about recurrence, meaning that events repeat, real events, events that 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 are have that we've seen and, and uh, 
and experienced actually repeat. You can have an event repeat 50 years from now and nobody will remember that it happened 50 years before. Because again, a very large population who will have witnessed it will be gone or will have forgotten about it. So there could be quite an interesting concept here when you talk about things like what you're talking about right now. Again, it comes back to limited perception. Like we believe in a particular timeline and we have the photographs to prove it. But it doesn't really prove anything other than it's a photograph. I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I was just talking about the concept of recurrence. Right. Now, here on Earth, we haven't been told the truth about anybody else coming. What I was told, again, around 1970, I didn't intend that, but I realized it's also 1970. Now, when you say coming, somebody coming, what are you referring to? Uh, I'm referring to the fact that I was told in 1970 the same thing that the Honorable Paul T. Hellyer the defense minister for all of Canada was told around 1980 that we've been visited by extraterrestrials for several thousand years. Okay. And that 70 are known to be visiting our planet. And that of those visiting frequently, we know which ones they are. They are the, the small grays, the tall grays, the amphibians, not the reptilians, and the Nordics. I was rather shocked when the defense minister of Canada was told that 10 years after I was, as as a kid who was time traveling, for some reason they figured we we needed to know that. Hmm. And they told us. So we're not really being told about the world that we inhabit for them to make that categorical statement. Um, and then share it with the Canadian minister about uh, 10 years later. But that's what I was told at my school, Morristown, Morristown uh, Mount View Road School in Morris Plains, New Jersey. And it was one of the teachers in Pegasus, but they felt we had a need, if we we're going to be time traveling, to know what visitors are coming here. And that was a long time before they're still talking about disclosure. With some people, in certain defense programs, there already has been disclosure. In fact, I think many of the the hosts or the sort of personalities that have grown up in the disclosure field are forgetting what they were trained in. Hmm. And that was in uh, alien uh, disclosure, one of the things they did. Now, another thing that's been kept back is the U.S. has been on Mars, according to the French and French external intelligence agency records that I, Regina Dugan, and Barack Obama were allowed to read when we were going to Mars. Um, In 1980, when we were being trained up at College of the Siskiyous, the U.S. government has been going to Mars since 1968. Now, the original mission of NARA, which was the original NASA, was the expansion of human knowledge and of space and the near-Earth environment. That's the congressional mandate that our elected representatives gave us to found a space agency. 
why have we been concealing the American presence on on Mars since 1964? I mean, I've gone from three years old to 61 years old during those years. Um, that doesn't really seem consistent with what Congress asked them to do. Now, another thing we know, I know from my, my fellow astronaut, Dr. Ralph Kenny Johnston Sr., Ken Johnston, Ken has been part of all U.S. space programs, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, Skylab, Space Shuttle, and Mars. And he was the one who snuck the photographs out of NASA that revealed that our moon is simply covered with fossils. I believe that. Yeah, it doesn't have just a few. It's covered with fossils. Why did they not want to reveal that? I think the same reason they don't want to reveal the presence of ETs on our planet. One one issue I heard from somebody in the CIA is that the King James Version of the Bible is one of the leading form of money raising for the British monarchy. And they simply do not want to show that other planets and planetoids, if it were, as it were, moons, are inhabited. So the 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 inability of them to admit that we're being visited by ETs also relates to, to try to create a picture of this planet that it's the only inhabited planet because there are powerful forces in the world that rely on that view of reality to make money. Hmm. So I think ultimately the failure of disclosure, as it's now called, is monetary. And I think we need to think about that. Now, well, let's discuss that for a second. Where, why do you think that? Well, I mean, we are living in certainly one of the largest examples of a money culture. It is capitalism, which is basically about money. Why do you, how, what makes you say that? I think they want to keep alive the idea that, you know, Genesis describes the center of reality and it's the center of our planet mm. and there are no, no other planets even in our own solar system that are inhabited and that's not true i've been to, went into one of them namely mars so they've kept an archaic understanding of the notion that just our planet is inhabited and we're kind of at the center of, of everything and right then we're yeah the well yeah you're 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 talking about the the basic concepts that that the um well it's okay the bible the concepts that the bible is is basically purporting is that god made the earth and the humans and that's it and so if yes, you inhabited life on other planets when in fact, Jesus said that my my father's house is vast and there are many mansions in it, which I think is a metaphor for the reality that there are there are planets and moons, planetoids that are screaming with life. Hmm. And this is the one that we have for this lifetime or this series of lifetimes. It's not everything. And they they've tried to keep alive the notion 
that this planet is everything. But you do know, or or let me let me let me not say it that way. Um, since I've studied many religions, the Vedas talk about life all over the universe, humans and and other forms. So what you're talking about basically is not accepted throughout the world, but rather in perhaps westernized Christian nations. Well, that's true. Um, But I think that kind of undergirds the political basis for those decisions. Now, I'm not saying it's okay, but I'm just saying that when people, for example, when I look at the demographics for Timeless Voyager, always the bottom line is that about let's say 60% of the people who watch the YouTube version or listen on Spotify throughout the world or or all the other uh, audio versions, the United States is about 60% of that. So even though my demographics are like that, you can see that another 40% of my demographics are not surprised about what you're saying. It's it's just interesting to think that way. Because if, yeah. a, if a person is, is quote-unquote religious in this um, Christian tradition, then they think a certain way. Right. Even if they claim to not be religious, when you talk about death like we were doing in the beginning the idea of death being the the end um most people are really scared and they're scared because of what they've been taught as children you know i don't want to like, go too far with this but i'll just say something that just kind of prop up what i'm talking about i did a talk once about 30 years ago and in my talk i was basically saying uh, something very simple. I I thought it was simple at the time. And that was that people really are indoctrinated at roughly, it totally indoctrinated with this concept that you're talking about. When they are baptized, they are at the most open point in their entire existence, even though they don't talk and they don't appear to think, they are completely immersed with, and then I'll just give a quick illustration, there's the water that is poured on them. There's all of the uh, possible singing, which is very strange, the black and white outfits that people wear, you know, priests and ministers, the fact that they're handed over to the minister. Even the parents aren't holding the child. The child, sometimes the only person that has never held them is the priest. He picks them up. I mean, they're actually offered to the priest or the minister. And that child then goes through this entire ritual, surrounded by the light that's coming through these windows that have all of these uh, pictures built into them. 
all of the things that are there. All of that happens at this time when the child is literally accepting of anything that happens. It's no wonder that people are scared whether they say they believe in this stuff or not. And that's all I wanted to say. Well, I, I think that's that's quite true. But I think we have to note that, okay, many of us were born sort of in the immediate World War, after World War II period, right? We're so-called baby boomers. Mm -hmm. One thing we weren't told until one of those veterans, Bill Tompkins, was like 50 years past World War II. Um, as somebody who had fought in it, is he told us the truth about the fact that World War II was not just fought with Americans and British and German and so forth. There was actually an extraterrestrial um, sort of stacking up on both sides in terms of the war efforts of what were known as both the Axis powers and the allies. The Axis were being helped by the amphibians slash reptilians, and the Nordics were helping the allies. So what is it now? About 70 years? Almost not, uh, not, a, not 70, but... Yeah, well, yes, it's, it's, yeah, it is. Right. it's about 70 years. You're right. Yeah, yeah, it's been 70 years since World War II. And I just find it amazing that that has not really surfaced except um, the, to the degree that the late uh, William Tompkins has done so. Well, even if you... A lot of World War II veteran, veterans in this country. If you read yeah. about the issues of Antarctica and uh, Byrd and his, his, his experience there... Um, it was quite obvious that he was talking about what was left over from, from World War II. Living down there, all of those different extraterrestrials still there. Yeah. But nobody talks about it 70 years later, except the quote-unquote strange culture, which, you know, I'm part of and you're part of. You know, we're just like, we're like the people, we're the outliers <laughs> <laughs> that talk about this stuff and it's and it's a, and it's like re received as interesting information but boy i'll tell you if a person buys into it that's quite a shock to their nervous system well look how we all um grew up playing with plastic army men right mm -hmm. and we thought well, oh, well i see what we're doing we're we're imitating what our dads did during the war no we were actually rehearsing a contrived version of that war because there were amphibians on the uh, Axis side and there were Nordics on our side, on the Allies. Let's be more specific for people that, that hear you using that term, Axis. Let's talk about who was the Axis. Well, the Axis powers were the Nazi Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese. Okay. it's. I just wanted to be specific for people that are that, you know, I don't want to. I don't want them to go look it up while we're listening. <laughs> listening to the so, show. <laughs> so we played. This was kind of going to my major premise today. We rehearsed a, a, you know, playing in which a version of the war was being reenacted, but it wasn't the real version. And how often that has gone on? 
and people have assumptions about what exists. Um, for example, I looked into, I was thinking of genetics, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know how much we all have in common genetically? Well, I do know that there's a lot, but I don't know the specifics. 87%. So basically, eighty-seven percent. You know, modern humans are convinced that they're all different, right? Because they look different or whatever. Yeah. They, we use the phrase "race." Mm-hmm. I believe there is a race. I believe race is a fallacy. Interesting. How could how could uh, we all have twenty-seven percent? I mean, excuse me, eighty-seven percent the same genes, and say that? So we're still living with outmoded ideas. Well, I mean, you can you can even look at blood perceptions that have been a, a case where we were lied to. Well, if you just want to bolster it by saying there are just a, a few blood blood types, <laughs> if you don't have those that the, the categories of blood types, you're not alive. So, I mean, it's not like they're an indefinite number. Then I think there I don't know what there are five or six. They're not they're not many of them. So yeah. It, it's it's very very important to to understand what you're saying. Well, we've we've always told the truth that Native Americans came over on the Barren Land Bridge, you know, over from Asia, and they have no B positive blood. I know because I, I I do have B positive blood, mm. and uh, they're about one percent of. Caucasian Americans, about ten percent of Han Chinese. There is no B blood among the Native Americans, hmm. so I don't really see how it would be possible to have an Asian origin, as that whole Bering Land Bridge story suggested. Well, yeah, and, and there is a lot of evidence now that the quote unquote Native Americans were already here. We don't know how long they've been here, but we we apparently are finding out that they've been here a long, long time. Yes, and they said that they've come from the center of the Earth. Right. Not from somewhere else on Earth. Okay, one one thing I think is going on is they're suppressing scientific truths for some reason. One that I know relates to what we call events potential. Events potential is is how much of a person a child becomes. Now, the British, in a study by uh, a scientist named Sir Cyril Burt, said that it was 90% nature or genetic and 10% nurture. Hmm. But an American scientist whose work on this project has kind of been forgotten, Dr. Roger Walcott Russell, found in fact that Sir Cyril Burt had fudged his twin studies and events potential is actually 60% nature and 40% nurture. Hmm. Now, why would they have done that? Why would they have lied about what a great contribution we, we can make to a child's life? Because they're, what they become is, is 60% nature and 40% nurture. That 40% can really go a long way. Well, I think, I think you might not, I'm not going to suggest this, but it could be a mistake. It doesn't have to necessarily be a purposeful statement, which makes it a lie. It may not be a lie, essentially, but I understand what you're saying. No, I'm, I'm alleging that, that Roger Russell's 
scientific testimony has been concealed. Hmm. I'm not saying that we entertain the notion that it's 90% nature and 10% nurture, but essentially create no reason to help any, any other kids have food to eat or anything. I'm saying that it really hasn't reached the American mainstream that Roger made that finding that it's 60% nature and 40% nurture. That means we all have an interest in getting the best things possible for everybody's kids because we can't overcome any deficits from their parents otherwise. In other words, we have to teach them. You know, education is necessary to uplift society. Okay. And that's, that's what Roger concluded. Okay, which was the same so, thing that Hillary Clinton c- concluded when she had her book about it takes a fa- uh, takes a uh, it takes a village it takes a village right yeah yeah to to raise a child right huh. yeah I mean I think it was poorly put but it was true it was a truism hmm. and that had been that had been proved decades earlier by an American scientist Roger Walcott Russell who went over to England and looked into Sir Cyril Burt's twin studies. It really does take everybody to raise everybody's kids well enough to have a society worth living in. And I mean in every area. What uh, Can you be a little bit more specific about the twin studies? Because I'm sure people may not be know them as well as you probably do. Yeah, Sir Cyril Burt essentially studied a group of twins at birth. And he claimed that what those twins became was 90% nature and 10% nurture. Now, any society who adheres to that is not going to be as concerned as the U.S. has been to feeding every child, clothing every child, teaching every child, giving every child the best health care and so forth. So Roger Russell was a good example of what transpired. He was a lifelong, what would now be called liberal. In other words, he recognized that if we all don't be concerned about all children and essentially treat them like our own, um, we're just simply not going to get a high quality enough society. And so there's kind of an argument for spending on kids. And it was proved as a matter of a, a genetic study when Roger Russell went over to England and examined the data that Sir Cyril Burt had had written as part of his twins study. And uh, he found that Sir Cyril Bird had lied to basically preserve kind of the British pattern of, oh, it matters that your father was a lord. You too shall be a lord. We kind of broke away from that tradition when we became a country. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so- I, I just mean that it was a scientific finding by a distinguished American scientist, I think for the National Science Foundation. He went over there for the National Science Foundation Hmm. and literally found an American response to that fudged study that was performed in England just to reify the monarchical tradition of the the British. Hmm. And that's what we kind of broke off from when we came a country, and yet that that study has not been popularized. It has not the story of that 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 study has not been told 
in America. And I think it should be. Um, I'm not saying that everybody has to adhere to everything that a liberal says, but the basic premise that it helps us to help other people's children was proven as a matter of scientific certainty. And if people could know that study, they would simply be more ready to play a positive role in producing good things for all kids. Because about 40% of what they become is going to be from that positive treatment. So we're, we're not really, we're sometimes sort of suppressing these scientific studies. And that was the best example I could think of. And it's been known by science since, since the study was done. But it was in the mid-50s. Okay, it's, it's 70 years or more later. And they just never popularized it. I think a lot of people, let's say people who don't have kids would find it much easier to pay their property taxes in California because just by educating other people's children, they're going to be benefiting. And I mean, that's not the only reason to do so, obviously, because it's the right thing to do. But you see, we can prove it's the right thing to do scientifically. And that might get the remaining individuals over that impasse to, you know, paying acceptable taxes and so forth. So there is kind of a scientific and a financial conflict in our in our society that still goes on between liberals and conservatives. But essentially, the liberal argument hasn't just been taken by people as a result of the Depression or whatever. The liberal argument has been proven. And it's not treated as an ascertainable truism. It's just it's just advanced as something good to do. What I was going to say was that uh, this is an example of of, of the uh, Supreme Court just recently overturning affirmative action, which in many ways was an attempt. I think it was an attempt to at least level the field for all kinds of purposes, including education and, and uh uh, especially education, which is what we're talking about. Because you don't have, I mean, people do educate themselves throughout life, but the largest part of education is during the child years. Would you agree with that? Yes, and, and that any any time that a group has been discriminated against, you're actually, it was known as that was still going on, that it was a bad idea because if somebody is denied something you actually want to get all the children uplifted you can't make it up with anything else or even your own kids there'll be times when you'll have kids who are more sick than normal not as bright as normal or whatever so they knew that the events potential was going to be 40% nurture. So that's what we should work on. That's that's the winning hand, you see. It's the winning approach to take. And I think in, the, in regard to affirmative action and, and other policies, that's always been controversial. But the generalized proposition should not be. And it really hasn't been. People still believe that if, if liberals are trying to talk them into being more liberal and less conservative, that they're speaking of like 
belief. Now I'm talking science. Hmm. Right. We have known since Roger Russell's study of Sir Cyril Burt's twin studies that 40% of what somebody becomes in any, in any regard, even giving kids exercise so they grow up healthy is 40% uh, nurture. So the argument that the, the advantage stands with nurturing kids, not, not depriving them of, of what they need. Right. Huh? Yeah. Not, not tolerate neglect of any kind with any, uh, with any group. And, uh, that's really what I wanted to share today on, on, on the show. Um, we're not, we're not sort of making scientific discoveries that scientific associations in this country have paid for and done well, and we're not making them part of our understanding of reality. And that's a good example of that. Time travel technology has caused circular causation. Now, this is why I want to see somehow scientific insight and learning hybridized with the, our social reality, our political and social beliefs and opinions. When I was on, I'll just give one example. When I was on Project Pegasus, we all know that I was sent back to Brooklyn Heights to advise General George Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. Now, why was I told to do that? I was told to do that because I had been filmed by the program doing that. Now, which came first, me going back to Washington's time or my image going back to Washington's time and then having them, um, you know, have me memorize what I said to Washington and go back and do it. Hmm. That had still not really been resolved, but that's what happened. So we're approaching an era in which there would be very twisty, very complicated scientific conundrums to answer. And I'd like to see us just on the same page about these basic things that we've proven before we have to prove the sort of irrational or contradicting um, behavior of time travel so, activity. So you're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong now, but are you suggesting, for example, that there are a lot of incomplete uh, loops here that are going to start creating problems? Not necessarily, but they could. I mean, I know that they sent me back to urge General George Washington to retreat his retreat retreat his troops from New York Harbor because they had filmed me doing it. So we are essentially reaching an era of paradoxical causation. Right, because you're suggesting, well, you know, we, we go through this all the time, so I'll say it for those who have not heard me say it. If a person believes that there will be tra uh, time travel in the future, right, right, then it means that the people who are experiencing time travel in the future can come back to the present, which is now, which means that there is time travel now, and there may have always been time travel, which is what you allude to, I think, even though 
uh, you were part of technology that you, that that created time travel. The point, I guess, is that there's always time travel, and it's always real. Am I on the right track here? No, I, I'm talking about an actual bona fide U.S. federal defense project where time travel was achieved in, so, in terms of a non-ordinary form of travel. So are you suggesting, I've, I got to interrupt you. Are you suggesting that even though you were part of a technology that had time travel, are you saying that there's no other way to have time travel besides the technology? No, I've talked to many people who have, even though I've gone back to the same location on a highway, for example. Okay. But what I am saying is we're reaching a stage of science that is becoming so complex that we really should understand what our existing science has, has already un understood. Okay. Um, because we don't disagree. I just don't want, I, I, we do agree. I was just making a point of something, but I can drop that point easily. Well, well, science, I mean, excuse, excuse me, um, just barging right into time travel science technology right after world war ii has not did not really emphasize that they had entered circular causation so they had to determine not so much that we were time traveling they had to first see what we did and then let us do it otherwise they would have prevented us from doing it, okay so we need to clear up what did you call it circular causation well, it's just the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't sent in time to see Washington retreat troops from New York Harbor. I was sent in time to urge Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor because they had filmed me in the past doing that. Hmm. Okay, everybody's always asking me questions about time travel as if, as if it's a first strike. And okay. where you're going. Okay. No, it's repeat of what you've done. All right. Because they've got it. They had chronovision. And they, you know, if we had decided to go back to the invention of something by Thomas Edison, there would be, we would be back at Edison. But they'd also be able to, you know, videotape us and audio tape record us to capture what we did and then send us there. But what would be the purpose again? They wanted to know what the past held and whether, in that case, chronovision was going to be as good as, as other record-keeping had been in recording something from the future, hmm. you know, who shot Lincoln, and so forth. But not to, in any way, create a paradox. No. But, I mean, it, it, it naturally did, because they had other, rather than just sending us there, they had forms of seeing us there hmm. that kind of did create a paradox. They sent me right. have uh, George Washington retreat his troops from New York Harbor, not because he had, but because I told him. And that had been lost to the past until time travel was developed, just like everything. <laughs> I mean, Interesting. when chronogen is, is fully developed, and if God forbid it's used in a, uh, in a, a modern context, None of us will have any privacy left. Right. We've talked about this, you and I. 
So that was just the point I was making on the show about before we get to there, to that late stage of technical development, let's figure out what we've already found. And one thing we found out is that we can make the, the best society, the best world for everybody by helping everybody's kids, not just some kids. Hmm. So the, the, the point about, or let's say a point, is once again, this is the two-edged sword. The more sophisticated time travel is, the, the I don't want to use the word silly, but the sillier the sillier the thing can get. Because if you start disrupting something, how far can that go? I mean, it, it's like, it's an endless mistake that keeps repeating, or can keep repeating, right? Well, they just felt, well, look, we've got Andy telling General Washington to, to do this. We can either not send him back or must send him back. Not only did they send me back, and they said yes to the past, so it became my future, <laughs> but they figured that was the only safe bet to make, and they did. So they trusted you. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> being a devil's advocate here, but they trusted you to say what you were supposed to say, as opposed to something else. I mean, right. they didn't just send me back <laughs> with a mission. So Andy, tell <laughs> tell General Washington anything that will work. Hmm. They had me memorize right what they had the audio tape and videotape for that matter of him saying. So you would have to be you would have to, you'd have to be loyal, really loyal. Well, I think they figured that maybe somehow it was somebody who was born in Morristown because that's where Morristown, New Jersey, because that's where Washington had wintered in mm -hmm. the winters of 1777 and 81. I, I don't know. But they didn't just send me and say, figure it out. Right. They sent me back knowing what I was supposed to say. So they gave you a what script. I said in, yeah. What I had said in the past. Right. So they gave you an absolute script. Yes. Yes, I had to memorize it. I even had to memorize the word propitious. Hmm. But none of General Washington, none of these propitious things will happen. And that was, you know, winning the Revolutionary War starting a country called the United States of America, being remembered as the father of his country. But none of those propitious things will happen. I, I, I want you to know it. You need to know, unless you retreat your troops immediately from New York Harbor. Mm. That is essentially circular causation. Yes, they sent me because Washington had to retreat, but they sent me to give that to, Marsh, uh, to General Washington because I, in the fullness of time, I already had. That's what we mean by destined, yeah. but that's that's what caused them to send it. And they even argued, look, do we just not send him? Because we've got the tape of him doing so. And they said, no, because we have tape of him doing so, he's now got to do it. So that is circular reasoning. They didn't say, Andy, we want you to make a judgment of what to say to General Washington to, to retreat his troops from New York Harbor, from his... Uh, tent up on Brooklyn Heights, they said, no, you have to memorize this statement to him and try to get it as right as possible. Because it really may make a difference. If you get it wrong, you may cause the Revolutionary War to fail. So it was pretty heady 
for a for a third of well, I was a fourth grader to uh, to deal with. Well, thank you for your service. And I don't mean that as a joke. I'm just saying I did mean that as a joke, actually. But I'm kind of also using that as an example. How can we understand yeah. how really far the government has gotten if we don't understand these basic scientific things that they've proved? That we all have 87% the same genes so that race is a fallacy. That we are all 87% the same genetic material. Right. Even men and women, there's not a gender bias with men and women, women and men. It is 87% the same genes. Okay. So we're going to be proving in coming years just how it seems like we're destined to, just how similar we are. And then we're going to have to get our minds wrapped around how advanced programs like Project Pegasus were in a new, a, a new framework, a new reality. They sent me back because they had taped me going back. They didn't tape what I did after I did it. I did it after they taped me. And that is circular causation. <laughs> well, I'm smiling like I understand it completely, but I don't. But I do understand the concept. I'm just still a little slow you here. You know, in previous times they had they had certain things that gave them information about the past. They had letters, diaries, photographs, mm -hmm. and so forth. We got really used to that. But when they developed a way to actually see the past, they realized, my God, we're going to have to send this person to the past. Or this isn't going to happen. Mm. And it ha when it happens, it creates the United States. So that's our decision. So I, everybody thinks, oh, you had this wonderful time time traveling, Andy. No, it just got harder and harder and harder because I either had to get it right or they were going to somehow alter or in some way possibly tarnish the past and with it the future. It got very, very demanding. It was, okay, we're sending you back. This is what you are going to have to memorize and remember to do. And it was a, it was a linguist from DARPA who came to my school. I don't remember her name, but uh, similarly, that lady came from DARPA and said, look, you kids, there's no reason to be worried about dying, time traveling for your nation's government. If you do, you will go back to heaven and live again. Mm -hmm. So that was actually kind of necessary to put us through the difficult experiences we were being put through. Unless you have something you want to talk about, I think we're probably at the end of this particular program. Um, no, just I think that we can, as we begin to time travel, we should begin to realize that essentially everybody matters, as Bruce Springsteen said, right? Either everybody gets, gets by or nobody will. Everybody matters. At the same time, singular people don't matter as much as they would make themselves out to be. But everybody matters, and we will do the best in a time-traveling generation or era if we are as omni-generous and omni-nurturing of our children as possible. Not my ch children, not yours, but everybody's. Because we've proven that. We'll pr we've proved that that will bring about the greatest outcome. I mean, you can't say it any better than that. Yeah, and that's what I was hoping to say. <laughs> but, 
but um you know i just wanted to show people there was kind of there was kind of an american pattern of doing this who could be more popular for junior high and high school uh kids as uh mark twain and ernest hemingway hmm. and they lied about twain's family not a lot i mean a lot of our teachers they simply were not taught to tell the truth about who the father-in-law of twain was right not just, not just an abolitionist but frederick douglas's mentor hmm. well how did that how did that miss uh 11th grade english class you know but it did and that's what's trying to make the point with well oh, yeah. that, that'll get more and more complicated if we finish that pattern but if we are challenged by other countries for example which could be possible hmm. i don't want to name them because i don't want to make them out to be villains before they are much nicer than that but how are we going to protect ourselves if not by investing in the next generation well we know that's 40 percent of what kids become it's not who their parents were it's their nurturance that they've got that may save us from a foreign war next week next year next century but that's not it's, it's being treated now like a political position that people take depending on whether they're gener more generous or more greedy it's not it's a, it's a scientific truth so let's start applying it as a scientific truth let's invest in kids make them stronger smarter more courageous Everybody says to me, Andy, how did you time travel when you were a kid and then go to Mars? I just tried. I just tried to do what I was told. Kids are very, very capable. And if you believe you're capable of something, whether it's psychic ability, time travel, going to another planet, you just have to believe in yourself and you can achieve it. But I think we should be doing that with all kids because what they become is 40% nurture and and right now it's just kind of like a you know it's kind of like a bias oh no i'm 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 liberal i i give to charities i give to kids and uh, and or i'm conservative and like holding on to my own money that's just the way my orientation of reality is and i think that everybody has to understand that i think that what's really uh, what's really important I'll underline what, what, what I hope you said. And that is that there's so much emphasis now on DNA and genetics. Um, people have lost sight of something, and what they've lost sight of is what you're talking about, which is teaching, teaching the children. Well, sharing. teaching, you know, nurturance. Nur it, it, it's not a political opinion. It's right. a scientific reality, but that's, that's what we can do is not necessarily all reproduced with genetically gifted people, but all cooperate in creating a better world and a better life for children at their inception. And, and we're not. I mean, when I, when I ran for president in 2016, I think there was something like 25% of American kids were um, going, to hit, going to bed hungry every night. Now, I mean, I think that that's something to get past just because it's right and because how would you like to be a starving child but that may literally govern whether we fend off another country or something hmm. for 40 percent of what kids become and then we're allowing them to go, be going to bed hungry every night 
even worse off than adults are having dinner, whatever, or having dinner at all. I think that if we made it clear what these scientific studies have found, liberal and conservative really wouldn't be choices. They would be just gradients of somebody's natural predilection. But we'd, we would all work together as a team. Just like on Star Trek, right? The great Gene Roddenberry. To have everybody benefiting from America. You know, we, 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 we might even oppose an extremely wealthy person to not become our, our presidential leader because they haven't shared enough. And that's not a, a targeted message vis-a-vis uh, -vis Mr. Trump. It's just true. In 2016, we elected a billionaire. Well, I don't think billionaire is such a great word. I know that in my life, I would have had difficulty sharing my money and my talents to the point where I was a billionaire. And I think most of us recognize we can do with a lot less. And that's not to, to take money and some kind of reward for our work away from us. We have to, we have to provide all the children, all the opportunity, at least up to an agreed point. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. I know that anyone who's listened to this appreciates it too. Let me take this opportunity, folks, to thank you for listening to the Timeless Voyager series. I really appreciate your watching and listening to the series on both video and audio players. You know, one thing you can do for me as the founder and creator of Timeless Voyager is to hit that like button. Also, please subscribe. It really helps to keep me on the air so that I can keep producing content like the program you just watched on a regular basis. Subscribing and liking are free. And here's the most important thing. There is no obligation. Uh, and those very small actions on your part are very greatly appreciated. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one. <laughs>